I'm Nick Abrahams, and welcome to Web3, From Mystery to Main Street, the podcast where we talk about how technologies like crypto, DeFi, NFTs, and the metaverse are being successfully embraced by mainstream businesses. Hello, everyone, and joining me today are two true evangelists of the NFT movement. We have Michelle Gray, who is co-founder and CEO of Culture Vault, and also listed in top 100 people shaping the cultural landscape in Australia, as well as the top 100 innovators in Australia. You also have a very special guest, Rabal Hosen, who is a mixed tech media artist, film director, and frankly, just an amazing storyteller. One of Australia's leading fashion filmmakers, having worked with Harper's Bazaar, Vogue, and brands like Country Road, Coach, Fila, and Adidas. So, Michelle and Rabal, great to have you on the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. And so, maybe starting with you, Michelle. Uh, quick backstory: How did you how did you end up uh, getting uh, getting to where you are and listed in the top one hundred in, uh, in a couple of different categories? Uh, well, I have a, my background is really steeped heavily in the what the crypto jargon called the trad art world. So, the traditional arts and cultural space. I spent a lot of time in New York, uh, working everywhere from the New York Times to Soho House and, and many institutions, institutions in between. Um, I wish I could say that I was one of these early adopters and that I was trading crypto back in 2013, but alas, I was not that forward thinking uh, and returned to Australia very much, um, again, steeped in the traditional cultural space. Um, uh, I founded a, a programming platform, a cultural programming platform called Arts Matter. And then really by accident, I was introduced to uh, two DGen guys who were heavy in the um, crypto and Web3 space. They actually had started to work on a crypto exchange platform, which at the time was called Oz Merchant. Uh, and they had realised that there, you know, it was around July last year. So we were heavy into the hype cycle of NFTs, in fact, uh, quite late because it started much earlier in the year. And they saw that there was a real interest um, in the space and specifically in the cultural space uh, with arts and music. Um, and they had done one NFT with a, um, a music, uh, what they called DJs called Flight Facilities, which are, are quite famous in Australia. And that went really, really well. They created a series of three different airdrops for Flight Facilities fans. They had a, a really incredible reception to that and then realised, hey, Oz Merchant should, why not create a subsidiary um, and build an NFT platform? I don't think they realised how difficult that was and how hard that uh, that um, concept was going to be. But they brought me in really from the traditional art world and we started to nut out this idea of not just making it part of Oz Merchant, not sort of like a drop-down menu for NFTs, but really building out something quite special. And we... <coughs> Uh, actually, originally we're going to build on Immutable, but then that was that felt very much like a, a very like a gaming play. Mm -hmm. um, and then we decided we went for Polygon, which, yep. uh, as I'm sure your listeners may or may not know, is a layer two solution that uses proof of stake. We felt that in the um, cultural space, specifically with artists, the environment was a huge factor. So minting on Ethereum uh, with the, the energy consumption felt a little off. As we all know, Ethereum 2.0 is coming and moving to proof of stake. So this idea of building on Polygon is almost a moot point. Uh, it also um, 
provided a lot of challenges for us, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, later. What are the barriers to adoption? And Polygon has a, a much larger, all of these Layer 2 solutions have huge barriers to adoption, worse uh, than even Ethereum. Uh, anyway, so we spent eight months building a Web3 platform on Polygon and Ethereum, and we launched in February with a whole host of trad artists and digital native artists, everyone from Rico Rennie and Steve Ormandy, of course, Rabal, to uh, some more um, NFT native artists like Sewa Adafua and Bianca Beers, Chris Yee, um, and several other Australian artists and international, I would say 50% of our platform is artists from New York, Japan, London, Paris, Africa, uh, and the rest are uh, local Australian artists. So that's that. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Thank you. And uh, Rabal, I guess your your backstory, I mean, you know, one of the world's leading fashion filmmakers and now involved in the, you know, significantly involved in the NFT world. I guess, how did you how did you come to uh, to where you're at now? Well, I guess the first time. So my background is actually I got actually used to be a pharmacist. So that's a, that's a whole different life. Of course, you used to be a pharmacist. And um, yeah, I used to do that. And then you know, work professionally as a fashion photographer. And eventually, I think in like 2014, 2015, started to feel that motion in fashion and stuff was coming. And there was just no one here doing it. And um, so I'd be on shoots and be like, hey, you know, like let me film some stuff as well. Maybe yeah. I'm gonna do this and. That kind of led to my, like creating some sort of my own niche in the space, which has been really like rewarding, and you know I've been fortunate to have a heaps of opportunities because of that. Yeah, and I guess in terms of getting exposed to the Web three space, so crypto NFTs. To be honest, the first time I ever was exposed to it was <clears throat> when my friends used to buy uh buy things off Silk Road in twenty twelve. <laughs> um, yeah, like my cousin actually still has 150 bitcoins that's locked up on Silk Road's website, oh. and the government's like taken it back. But anyway, I never knew how to use it. I like right. Onion Tour and all that stuff was so confusing to me. But then, like 2017, I started investing, like buying crypto coins and okay. stuff. Like, I yeah. think I bought Ethereum back then for like 100 bucks. Nice. But then I sold it for two hundred bucks. Okay, like, <laughs> not so good. But, you know, that's you know a, and, everyone then, loves um, Yeah, so I've had I had all that kind of exposure, and then um, to be honest, the the way I entered the NFT space is I was at uh, the NGV, and there was this massive artwork. As soon as you walked in, it was like twenty meters high. Yeah, I'll read the and it, yeah, it was Rafiq Anadol's work. It's like this, he, he uses data to generate art. Oh, beautiful. Okay. And it was just like, to me, I was just like, you know, I'm into visuals and everything. I'm just like standing there frozen. So, you know, I was following him on Instagram. And then I saw him go live on an Insta story and he's like, oh, you know, for the next 24 hours, we're dropping an, you know, I'm dropping an edition of NFTs. And I'm like, oh my God, that's sick. Like, I'll, I'll buy that. Like, yeah. you know, so that was my first entry into the space and, you know, bought a few other art things that I liked. And then I started really jumping in on the bubble of it. So, like, yeah. you know, oh, wow, there's heaps of money to be made here by this. Like, you know, after I got the art pieces, it was more like, let me enter the NFT space as a DJ and make heaps of money and blah, 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 blah. But then obviously the last eight months, if you're not down 90%, then you're doing good. 
right? <laughs> in terms yeah, of a de- uh, in terms of a degen spot, like it's it's so hectic. How see? I, I mean, I find it as as played out as a microcosm of what's actually gonna is gonna happen in the real world. But um, I guess once that all kind of started happening, I still started to be like, oh wait, what are actual artists doing? Like, right. or what are the what are the crypto artists? Because like it's kind of weird in Australia. We don't really use Twitter. Mm. So like I, I opened an account in October, and mm. which sucked because the entire Web three crypto artist sphere is all on Twitter. Yeah, like it's like that is you know, they don't even look at Instagram. So trying to figure out Twitter and then getting in the space and just seeing the culture and learning the terminology and doing all that stuff, and then you start to see who's super famous in the crypto space. Yeah, and then um. Then you see all these celebrities who are just clear cash grabs. It's like so transparent. Even 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 legitimate brands. There's only probably a handful of brands that are um, legitimate entries into the space. But yeah, once I started getting figure out like participating in that way, because you know participation is progression. Yeah. And once I started doing that and being part of more sort of groups around the world, I'm like, well, you know, now I want to contribute. You know, as a creator, and um. That's kind of where I am now, and I'm. Australia's a bit tricky, just because in terms of onboarding, I think we're a bit more conservative in terms of the unknown. There, there is a pocket of like the most forward-thinking, creative explorers, but um, in terms of the general sphere, and I'm sure Michelle can agree with that. You know, there, there's there's way more resistance than you, you you'd expect. So, you know, it's it's, it's I'm in a spot now where it's kind of like, okay, how do I contribute? How do I participate? What do I want to make? And yeah, it's interesting. It's just the Aussie um, time zone is hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think um, uh, maybe just to, um, uh, I think what would be interesting too, because because with the many of the listeners um, to this probably don't necessarily understand exactly what a DGEN is. So maybe could you um, even just give us a, uh, a definition of um of what what's what's what the, what does that mean what as a lifestyle okay. and so forth. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a handful of definitions which I had to learn on crypto Twitter. So right. crypto Twitter is abbreviated as CT. Right. So, so this is this. I mean, for listeners, this is saving you hours, <laughs> hundreds of hours of trolling through uh, sometimes excruciating tweets on crypto Twitter. So uh, exactly, and so a DGen is. Pretty much a degenerate, right? So people who are jumping in on trades, in out. It's like a day trader or a gambler, I guess. So just there's degen life, then there's collector life, whatever. There's the phrase "wag me." So W A W A M I. It means we're all gonna make it. That's my favorite crypto joke. <laughs> my favorite is LFG, which is let's f and go. Right. <laughs> um, you know. They're kind of real common terms. I mean, there's NGMI, so not going to make it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, but when a celebrity enters the space, it's like, oh, lol, not going to make it. Like, everyone just, like, pays them out. But, yeah, a DGEN is a degenerate. So, like, a, like, a degenerate, like, you know, a full tilt poker player. Yeah, yeah. And if you're a degenerate, usually you are up all night 
watching the markets, you're trolling Discord, you're probably a member of about over 100 different Discord servers. 200. 200, there you go, 200 Discord servers. You're you're jumping in and out of their servers, looking to see if if, if certain projects are scams, making sure you're part of certain whitelists, making sure you're up, up, up at 3 a.m. when the, when something the live minting is going, is yep. being dropped. Like basically, yeah, full tilt in that space. Uh, and I'm not there anymore, which is good because my, I think, comprehension of the space is like I don't even have to worry about that stuff anymore just because like I'm, I'm pretty much in one Discord 24-7 now. Like that's always okay. on. Yeah. Right. So, so it's, it's no longer. I will never grind for a, a whitelist. Is like an early access to a project, so you get yeah. to you know buy it before everyone else. But I don't. I would never try and get that unless it gets given. So like, yeah, I, I'm not in that hectic period anymore. I'm I'm not as bad as a degen as I used to be. I'm more of a collector. <laughs> a reforming collector. Oh, fantastic! We, I, I think this is you know you're you're our first um, fully fledged degenerate to be on the podcast. Uh, well, I'm super excited about that. I wear that proudly. <laughs> um, but so so what you've raised is a, is something that fascinates me because. I mean, the, the, this podcast is all about talking, I guess, to enterprises and more traditional organisations about sort of the opportunities in NFT and metaverse and so forth. And, you know, what's fascinating is we get, you know, there's a lot of corporate-style NFT projects going on, um, but there's this real culture clash, it feels to me, between, you know, enterprises, you know, big business-to-consumer companies that are selling NFTs and I'm assuming that a large part of the community that's buying those are, probably are in the DGEN space, which is, you know, it's, it's it's just an odd, you know, are they even people that big brands want to have as clients or customers? I don't know. I'm going to answer that. First of all, Rebel, you maybe you're going to dispute me, but I don't think that a lot of people who are buying um, NFTs that are uh, created and minted by big brands are necessarily deep in the DGEN community. Okay. I think DGEN, DGENs are buying different types of projects. I think that the benefit of big brands and big enterprises entering the NFT space is really to bridge the gap between the crypto community and their um, traditional consumers. Yeah. I'm assuming like if you're, uh, you know, there's a, a brand obviously everyone's heard of Clinique mm-hmm. did. Um, what I thought was a very interesting, uh, you know, not particularly complicated NFT drop where um, they dropped tokens sort of as mem- like sort of a membership loyalty program. Yep. And part of that, so uh, if your listeners uh, know a little bit about it, NFTs, there are different types, right? There's an NFT yep. that's just digital art, which like Rubal was talking about, Rick Anadol, where you're buying purely because you love the visual aesthetic of it and it's an artwork and you may display it in your home. But there are other types of NFTs. NFTs can be a community token or a membership token that has either real-world utility or digital utility. They can be a memorabilia token. It can be a token that shows that you were at a certain concert or show or place at a certain day and time. There are um, certificates of authenticity tokens. LVMH is sewing um, them into the seams of their handbags so that you can tell that, you know, that it's a, a real Louis Vuitton and it's not a fake. So my point being that with this, back, back to this Clinique drop, you know, part of the real-world utility of that was things like, you know, you could have a lip gloss that was out of stock, you know, if you if you hold the token or you get 20% off at Clinique or essentially loyalty rewards. 
I bet you that a huge amount of those people who got those NFT tokens were current consumers of yeah. of Clinique. I don't yeah. think like DGENs were running out to get the Clinique NFT token. <laughs> so I guess my point is is that like I, I I'm sure there are some brands that do a really good job. I'm sh- like you know for starters, um, you know Coca Cola just dropped a really interesting NFT on World Friendship Day where you got a free NFT and, and you could only see the artwork if you shared it with a friend. You know, those sorts of people. I don't know how many DGENs are, are heavy into that space. Okay. So I don't know if I've gone off topic. No, but, but I, do, I, do see I agree that, with that. Yeah, and also I do see this paradoxical nature, right, because essentially essentially, blockchain was meant to, is, is the philosophy or the ideal is decentralisation, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Let's get governments out. Let's get let's get banks out of the uh, out of the equation. And so um, there is like a little a little bit of a, a push and pull, right, between a, a heavily centralized organization like Coca Cola or, or or these big brands, and really the ideal and the philosophy behind decentralization, which is trying to eliminate this having like a permissionless um, economy or a, 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 a permissionless platform where we don't really need the interference of you know, big third-party entities. So it, I always find that an interesting push and pull. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think one thing I'd kind of add to that, I know the intention is decentralisation, but, yeah. you know, since it's still a speculative market, you know, defined identifiable scarcity is what brings value to a lot of things. So, you know, for collections, a one-of-one or one-of-2,000 or whatever. So that's where DGENs jump in. They're like, oh, you know, there's only 500 of them, buy them, jump. So... Strangely enough, most of the DGENs or like the traders who are going to bring volume into a project to increase its value, their folios, 80% of it would be trash, which they're just trying to buy and sell, buy and sell, flip, make quick Ethereum. But then they do have their 20% holdings that are blue chips. So Clonex by Nike, like Michelle mentioned, that's one of the top five blue chips. You know, um, you know, obviously Board Ape Yacht Clubs and crypto punks and all that so there are blue chips that you do aspire to as a degen to grab and hold because you because you know maybe one percent of these projects will actually be around still in a few years yep also i think what you what you're saying too is like depends what not like i think there's a different definition of what like what not yep. doing well right yep. so like clinic back to clinic just as i yep. um, we work with quite a few beauty brands you could say that's not doing well because the price of Ethereum is dumped, right? So all of those tokens are... No, I try not to equate that. Like okay, you're saying because, yeah. you know, a lot of these brands, their their priority isn't de- isn't necessarily remuneration. It right. is probably around community building, mm-hmm. connecting. You, you mentioned um, uh, the NFL. Was it the NFL? Or the the AFL? Yeah, the, the AFL. AFL. Yeah. You know, it's, about, it's about connecting to wallets, right? Because we yeah. understand or we're beginning to understand that, that crypto wallets are the new data play. So mm. brands aren't connected, yeah. you know, that, yes, it's great. If you're a brand and you can make a million bucks on uh, worth of Ethereum because you're selling, to, you know, digital assets or tokens, great. But we're all understanding that that uh, connecting to crypto wallets, especially segmented crypto wallets, right, wallets that you know are into sport or fashion or art or, or however you wish to segment the list, um, we're realising that, you know, 10 years ago, People were spending quite a bit of money buying email lists. Now, buying email lists is almost useless. There's so many GDPR rules, um, or you know, anything that's promotion goes into a promotions folder or spam. But uh, there's not 
very much regulation around crypto wallets. So we're realizing that's a new data play. It's also potentially a new social passport. So mm-hmm. we're seeing like we, we, we've seen the, the absolute obsession with Instagram and this idea that everybody wants to see what concert I've been to, what country I've been to, what bag I'm wearing. It's a complete status play. Crypto wallets, I think, in the future will be a similar social passport. So if you look at my crypto wallet, for instance, now, you can see um, I went to the Jordan Gogo's fashion show. I have mm-hmm. the Rush NFT. I have a Rabal Hosen. I have a Stephen Ormandy. You know, like you, you can you can pretty much identify, I won't say to too much of an extent, but sort of what I'm into. Yeah. And so this, again, like I said, is the big data play for brands. And I think that's why they're really getting into this space. Yes, it's good to make a quick buck, but the data is the most valuable asset that they'll be collecting. Yeah, yeah, it's, that, that's an interesting topic. That's getting hotly, <laughs> you know, a lot of um, yeah, that's that, that's an interesting one. A lot of the crypto OGs are not in, are like hate yeah. that, and like we're going to give you fake, fake wallets, fake IDs, and we're going to sell you <laughs> NFTs. So yeah. it's it's interesting the like you know the culture, how the culture responds to mm-hmm. to certain players. Yeah. You know, and um, but yeah, I 100% agree with what Michelle just said. You know, uh, Board Ape Yacht Club did that start of the year doing a, a KYC check for anyone wanting to be part of their sale. KYC is, uh, what is it? Know your client. Your client. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. So, so just to sign up to potentially be on their whitelist, right? They all you had to do is go to their website and um, do a KYC. And everyone's like, why the hell are they doing KYCs? And then everyone realized it's a data right. collection. <laughs> Right. It's like, it's like we just everyone just sent them the passports. Right. <laughs> and like, you know, just to make a buck, all the DGENs. And it's like yeah. But um, yeah, no, it's it's an interesting yes, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting how the culture shapes itself. Yeah. It's and um presumably sorry, presumably no 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 go no no go just because I mean it's a fascinating um topic and and the reason why big brands uh, are getting involved. And presumably what has what has happened is we've seen, you know, I guess the DJs or the early adopters really you know, validate the technology, but also lead to, you know, onboarding is, is easier now than it was, you know, six months ago and so forth. And obviously it needs to get, you know, as easy as, you know, a credit card transaction before, you know, we see widespread adoption. Um, so the DJs, I guess, have, you know, have helped to normalise that and I suspect um, whilst the DGENs may react against the data collection, uh, you know, for the for you know ninety percent of the population, they probably come on and and maybe it does become that social passport. Um, I'm just interested, particularly Raval, your to your your life, your professional life at least, has been around the intersection to a degree of art and commerce. Um, you know, because you're a, you know you're a filmmaker. Um, but you also work with brands, you know, as we mentioned, you know, Vogue, Country Road, etc. So is is that what's happening in, in I guess the web three world? We talk about the creator economy and so forth, but but sort of a, a layer above that, which is you as a creator, are there opportunities that you're seeing for you to work together with the big brands and uh, and sort of come up with us interesting solutions for folks? Well, I think Michelle could probably talk more on like um working with bigger brands but in terms of the space on my end like <clears throat> monetizing creativity is nearly impossible you know like to monetize anything creative sometimes <laughs> you're ahead of your time behind your time but if you can right. do it 
you, you know, you have to internally you have to reconcile that, you know, your art and commerce, like, you know, yeah, you can't push the, your creative agenda too much, which yeah. is like, that's an art in itself. So if you can monetize anything creative, you do like keep doing that. Cause that's so rare and hard. People I think yeah. underestimate, I guess the web three space is more liberating in the sense that like, you can kind of do anything and it's all, like anything you want. It's all new tech and it's, just I feel like I'm a kid out on a playground again. Like it's just like I'm just like you know, you know, when time stops and you're like, I haven't moved for five hours, like when I'm sort of engaged in the space and creating stuff. So I mean, and you do get exposed to big brands, like you know, or people on Twitter. Like again, I can't stress this enough in Australia how much we've missed out by not being a Twitter native country. Right. Like because you've got massive artists and celebrities around the world who are following a lot of yeah, web three creators and NFT OGs and NFT artists who are like they're reaching out to them. And it's like, damn man, like we're so like you know a bit behind on that. So this, I mean, opportunities are endless, and you'd be surprised how helpful the web three community is. Right. Yeah. You know, you know, if you participate and like you, they can they can smell someone who's just in it for a cash grab versus someone who's like legit. You know. Yeah. 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 No. There's. I think there's definitely opportunities. But again, in Australia, I think it's um a bit a slower burn than what people, yeah, than than what's happening overseas. Yeah. And Michelle, you're. I mean, you're at the vanguard of this. Could you explain? We heard a little bit about Culture Vault and and what that does. But can you can you perhaps explain it in a little bit more detail? Sort of what what the Culture Vault solution is, and and I guess you know, how the creators uh, work together with you and also what it means for other folks who might want to access, I guess, art and, and NFTs. Yeah, so traditionally we really started as this idea of bringing across trad artists and helping them kind of expand their practice um, and utilise blockchain technology to, you know, both... Like I said, as a, as a digital, use digital art as a different, you know, as an expanded um, creative medium, but also potentially because we started in the hype cycle to create other revenue streams. So that process, um, you know, for someone like Rabal is not as confronting because he is a self confessed DJ. But for an artist like, let's say, Stephen Ormondy or Rico Rennie, who really have absolutely no understanding of the space, it's a huge amount of hand holding from setting up their hot wallet to setting up their custodial wallet to writing the smart contract for them to writing off-chain, you know, so off-chain and on-chain contracts, helping them um, animate. We we even went so far as helping with creative direction. We would assign animators and musicians to write the score to their NFTs. uh, And then we would um, mint it, list it, create uh, virtual galleries for them. So it's sort of like this whole suite of services for the trad artists. Then we realised that while that was great and we're, you know, a part of our mission really is bridging, you know, bridging the gap between the the traditional world and the crypto community, that was so labour-intensive and the return on investment is so small because we only take 10%. Right. So, you know, you can't be competitive as an NFT art platform if you're you're going to be taking more than that. I think, you know, um, the big platforms like Foundation and Super Rare and Known Origin Makers Place all took 15, but they've since dropped down to 10. Um, So you can imagine that if you're taking 10% of an artist's work, that it has to be a volume play, right? Right. So that's how a company would make money. 
But then the concept of volume play doesn't really make sense as it sits next to the idea of curation, right? So, you know, you either go volume and you go open C or you go curation and, um, you know, even now Foundation is no longer a curated site. It used to be that you had to have, you know, you had to be invited by an artist that was on the platform and now they've just opened it right up. Again, I'm assuming, you know, some investor came in and said, we need to monetize this baby and it's not going to work if you guys are so heavily curated. So... We um, now take on, you know, we now work with a lot of NFT artists where the onboarding process isn't so great. Um, And then we are working towards, so essentially I think everybody hopefully who is listening knows it's a crypto winter. We're in a bear market at the moment. Um, It's actually probably for us the best time to build. It's, um, you know, it's a, we call it the survival of the fittest stress test. (laughs) <laughs> you know, all the people that are not adding value to the ecosystem yeah. fall away. All the people that are doing projects that don't really make any sense, they're they're going to zero. And so we're kind of staying here. We're heavily building tech. We are minting still once a week with artists. We're working towards building what we're calling a community curation DAO. So um, at some point when we reach, uh, I don't know, for your readers, oh, sorry, for your listeners who don't know what a DAO is, it's a decentralised autonomous organisation essentially think of something where it's um, bottom-up governance rather than top-down governance, sort of like voting by the people. Uh, So the community curation DAO, like I said, once we reach a certain capacity, we will start giving tokens out to our artists and then they will start voting on the artists that come in. Again, because we talk about this proposition of decentralised, centralised, cultural centralised because we curate, but we're, you know, uh, my business partner is heavy heavy degen and, um, you know, doing everything you can at all times to move more to decentralised and centralised. Uh, and then I guess, you know, we a big part of our business proposition at the moment, especially in a bear market, is we work with brands to help them on their NFT projects, um, metaverse strategies, Web3 strategies. So we have, I think, over 15 clients, um, big Australian brands that we work with to help them with that. So uh, that's how we're keeping our head above water during the spare market. Brilliant. Brilliant. I'd love, love to just um, pull up a little bit on the working with brands side of things. And, and so do you offer sort of a strategy piece so the brands come to you and say, you know, we want to do something in the metaverse, we're not 100% sure, we think we're headed down an NFT path. And do you sort of get involved at that at that level and then sort of help them work out, you know, what what, what would be the right product and, and how the go-to-market strategy would work? Yeah, exactly. In fact, you nailed it. Brands who come to us saying, we, we heard the buzzword metaverse, we've read about NFTs, we don't really know what they what they are like, but, you know, we noticed that Balenciaga dropped their collection in Fortnite yeah. and Prada's doing NFTs and Penfolds is doing NFTs, so we're figuring, like, we should at least explore it. And then so we provide the creative and business strategy and because we have our own smart contracts written and Web3 platform, we provide all of the technical expertise and um, execution as well. So we can airdrop, we can make PFP projects, we can do dynamic NFTs, we can I mean, we can do it all um, from a technical perspective, but obviously that um, sits beside the creative and business strategy that we provide brands. Yeah, no, that that's fantastic. I mean, it, it's, it is remarkable. I mean, literally, you know, sort of 12 or 18 months ago, you know, if we started talking to big brands, banks and so forth about metaverse or crypto oh. or NFT, it was like, you know, they thought, you know, you were either criminal or stupid or, <laughs> or you know, a combination of the two. And now, 
Uh, no, it's very much changed. I mean, we thank you so much. There's, there's been a lot. There was a bunch <laughs> of other things we we're going to talk about. Maybe we'll just finish off on, I guess, um, maybe maybe two questions, um, one for each of you. I guess um, uh, for Michelle, maybe uh, something about what, what you see as the future, particularly for brands in the NFT metaverse space, you know, over the next five, 10 years, where, where we're headed with that. And then I'll, I'll give you a little time to think about, but what, what, you know, what do you see, you know, what excites you, I guess, about five years hence? And what do you, what do you see, I guess, the metaverse, NFT, et cetera. But uh, Michelle might um, ask you that question first. So, you know, where do yeah. brands and the metaverse? I mean, listen, I think that uh, I would be lying if I said I knew exactly what it was going to look like. I think this yeah. technology is moving very quickly. Uh I put it this way, Web3 is coming whether we like it or not. <laughs> right. Metaverse is coming whether we like it or not. What the iteration will be, how it's all going to be interoperable, whether the tech that is the tech now is even functional in the metaverse or what we're calling the metaverse because, as we know, the metaverse is not here yet. We just have a lot of mini virtual worlds. The metaverse will be when everything is interoperable, which we're quite far away from. You know, I think that brands will move into um you know, like I said, whether they like it or not, the Web3 space, I'm not sure what iteration that will be. I think that blockchain has a lot of kinks to iron out. Uh, and I think that what excites me about this space is exactly what Raval said, which is my favourite crypto jargon, Wagney, we're all going to make it. Like I've spent my career in um, a, a space that was very much like this. Don't share contacts, don't share ideas, don't, you know, don't tell anyone that you're doing that. And it was, it was very um, exclusive and it wasn't in, inclusionary at all. And I think that the reason why this space is going to make it is because the true DGEN uh, kind of philosophy and way of being is, I mean, it's open source, right? Ethereum. Vitalik yeah. built Amazing. Ethereum on Amazing. an open source. We can, yeah. like, that code is open. When, like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg didn't do that. <laughs> Facebook's not open source. It's just a new way that I'm super excited about. And I, and I think um, all of us working together is, are going to create something really great. Fantastic. And, uh, Raval, your, um, your, your views on, on the future. Should we be afraid or should we be enthusiastic? I mean, it should be a healthy fear. A healthy anxiety, like you know, don't, don't be just blind and run into it. But um, I guess I'm, I guess the one thing I'm really excited about is it does give you an opportunity for to have agency and your own yeah. control of your world and your ecosystem and your community and collectors and stuff that you make. But I, I, the one thing I'm actually really interested in is when because right now NFT space is really being used a lot to sell digital art. But the one thing I'm really interested in is when the actual technology becomes the art. So like the tech, so people, when they get stuff, they can engage with the art and it changes based on them and stuff like that. Like I'm really interested to see when it moves to that part. But um, yeah, I'm just, I just like the unknown. So I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. That's fantastic. Well, well, I, th I think that uh, that it was probably sensible for you to move away from pharmacy. It seems like you've uh, <laughs> you've, you've found your spot in the world and uh, helping to shape it. Uh, and well, mom still introduces me as a pharmacist. My mom still. <laughs> oh, really? 
Yeah, so like, you know, at the family family gathering. immigrant mentality. So, you know, <laughs> you've met my son, the pharmacist. <laughs> I love that. Well, I love her. Well, thank you both. That has been absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate your time. So, Michelle Gray and Rebel Hosen, uh, thank you very much for your time. Best wishes. Uh, looks like the future is in good hands with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Web3 from Mystery to Mainstream. Nothing in this podcast is legal or financial advice. Have a great day. And remember, every organization needs a Web3 strategy.